Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 72, Bloody Button. And joining us for our Halloween episode is our special guest, Jason Harden. Yes, it is me, Jason Harden, here to spook you on this nice evening. Welcome to the podcast, Jason, where we will be talking about the scary films of Tim Burton, who is one of the directors that you have a lot of fun watching. I don't know if he's necessarily one of your favorite directors, but I know that you really like these movies. Dude, absolutely, man. I mean, I've always been passionate about Halloween, and Tim Burton, of course, was just kind of that catalyst for that, you know, starting with The Nightmare Before Christmas and seeing that for the first time as a kid, well, you know... Kicked off the craze. Basically. <laughs> I mean, it's all over the place. I love it. Oh, yeah. And we should mention right off the bat, even though The Nightmare Before Christmas has a lot of Tim Burton touches in it, and he did work on it as a producer, he was not the director on that film. Although that is a very, very common misconception. Um, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of films like that. Mm. Like a, people, a lot of people associate Coraline and say. a lot of films like that with Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. Although he, he often has like producer touches to it but not actually direct it oh and james and the giant peach is another example of that as well yeah henry selick i believe was the guy who directed that yeah he directed henry selick directed that he directed uh the nightmare before christmas and he directed Coraline, uh which are all fantastic movies with a lot of tim burton spins on them but we're not here to talk about that guy we're here to talk about tim burton uh what can you guys tell me about the background on tim burton so we know this weird human who makes these weird movies (laughs) Well, something that we were actually talking about the night before was, you know, he did start off as a Disney animator. In fact, he, I don't know if he's actually officially credited on Fox and the Hound. I'm not sure. That I'm not sure either, sometimes. but it's well documented that he, he was an animator on mm-hmm. Fox and the Hound. And didn't you have an anecdote about like the style of that yeah, film? Yeah, so he apparently he, he was an animator for Disney for a while and he worked uh, on some live action stuff too. I think he did a Hansel and Gretel with the... Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like an Asian cast and stuff like that. But uh, on Fox and the Hound, he actually had a lot of trouble fitting into the Disney style of animation. He called it soft, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Um, And because he's, you know, obviously, as we're going to talk about his aesthetic today, he's much he's very like dark and gritty and uh, stuff like that. Uh, So he he would be put on all these wide shots where he didn't have to draw the foxes (laughs) or the other characters up close. Um, And uh, I think he was like the lead animator for um vixie the female fox Mm -hmm. uh character and he would start off on the wide shots but as he kind of got used to the character he would he would work on the closer ones but yeah he definitely had some uh creative and stylistic differences with disney um that he was able to kind of lean into whenever he broke away from them after uh his first feature which was uh peewee herman's big adventure which is so random (laughs) It's such a strange thing. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It does have the eye-popping thing that we're going to see a couple times (laughs) in the movies today. Uh, For some reason, Tim Burton loves those eye-popping graphics. Oh, dear God. A lot of people like to associate dark with Tim Burton, and that's certainly true. But also, it's not just dark. It's dark plus whimsical. And Mm -hmm. so Pee Wee Herman is is a strangely good fit. It's just not quite as dark as some of his other uh, material. Which is a perfect, you know, segue into our very first film, which happens to be Edward Scissorhands. Uh, yeah, so um, let's talk uh, briefly about the movies we're talking about today. So starting with Edward Scissorhands from 1990, uh, this movie was nominated for Best Makeup. That's the only sense. thing. But you'll oh, notice yeah. a, a lot of art direction and makeup direction uh, nominees in the other two movies as well. Yeah, and our second film today is Sleepy Hollow from 1999, which is, of course, based on the short story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. Um, And this one won an Oscar for Best Set Direction, and it was nominated for Best Cinematography and Best Costume Design. Oh, yeah, I can agree with that. And the last film that we'll be discussing today is Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, which came out in 2007. It is actually based on the Stephen Sondheim musical of the same name, which is based on the Penny Dreadful serial, A String of Pearls from 1846, which I actually had no idea about. I always thought it started off as a musical. 
No, this is a very old character. I didn't realize that either until I started researching it this week. But uh, there are actually film adaptations uh, of Sweeney Todd and the Sweeney Todd story going back to the 1930s, mm. like the really old school, um, practically silent films. So I did not realize how what a legacy that this character had. And I was actually told by my wife, actually, that Angela Lansbury played Mrs. Lovett at one point. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. there's a little tidbit for you. Well, anyways, back to the Tim Burton film. It actually won for uh, uh, Best Art Direction, uh, which that makes plenty of sense. Uh, of course. Um, nominated for Best Actor, which of course would be Johnny Depp, and Best Costume Design, again, makes plenty of sense. <laughs> All right, so with that, let's uh, let's get into the nitty-gritty of our movies. And since Jason has been doing all of our uh, movie breakdowns, we're actually going to have uh, a friend of Jason's who is also quite into the vocal recording <laughs> realm. Uh, his friend Caleb Hiles is coming on to uh, graciously read our film summaries. So Caleb, set us up for Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands from 1990. In a happy little suburban town on a happy, bright, sunny day, Peg, a door-to-door sales associate for a makeup company, made her rounds throughout the neighborhood with no success. As she entered her car defeated, she looked up and noticed a mansion atop a gloomy hill and made this final stop her last-ditch effort to make a sale. Little did she realize that the inhabitant within the mansion atop that gloomy hill would change her life and the lives of her neighborhood in extraordinary ways. So Edward Scissorhands was actually quite a surprise. Uh, Just for the longest time, I thought this film was a romance film. It kind of is. Kind of is in the end, but I always thought that that was just like the entirety of the story. It's not like a rom-com or anything. Right, right. And often too, I'd often see like trailers like depicting, it almost looked like, because we watched the film, so it almost looked like Edward Scissorhands became a barber in the end of the film. Like that was how they, society grow to know him but turns out that's actually a lot of the (laughs) film is him using his scissor hands and making people's lives more convenient i suppose yeah contributing to the society with the the talent that he has i guess if we want to get into kind of a uh a more philosophical view of it, which I think that this film actually has a lot of elements that mm-hmm. are really interesting to look at, like um, as kind of a modern fairy tale. It takes a lot of elements from classical fairy tales, like you can see a lot of parallels with uh, Beauty and the Beast yes. and stuff like that, um, or even Frankenstein, uh, and kind of turning, taking elements of that and not really like retelling those stories, but making something different set in the modern world, but also in a fantasy world, which I think that that's a, a tone mix that's really interesting and I think actually comes off really well in the movie. Uh, yeah, it is a pretty fantastical world. I mean, even the, uh, you know, the the plain suburbia that we're supposed to be descending into doesn't feel quite on the nose as actual suburbia. Unless mm-hmm. maybe right. like there's, it's I'm, I'm sure there's some certain Florida subdivisions out there that look like that. <laughs> but... Because I mean, all the houses is, are like pastel colors. Yeah, it looks like like Easter the city. Everything's really far <laughs> apart. Everything is really big and simple and brightly colored um, and pastel to the point of like gaudiness. Um, and of course, there's a gaggle of gossiping females uh, oh, yes. wandering about um, in in this in this suburban town, talking about how things should be and how things shouldn't be. And they're all a bunch of hypocrites. And it's really fascinating to watch. Um, because you you go in expecting it to be a Tim Burton movie, everything's going to be super duper dark, and of course there's dark moments in it, but most of it takes place like during the day. Oh yeah, you got a lot of the clear skies, sunny day, and all the all that town stuff. Like you're saying, is very colorful, and you know, oftentimes you think of Tim Burton as uh, like we've been talking about a very dark director, but. And I always thought it was interesting because I always kind of had it in my mind that Tim Burton kind of started off doing really dark gothic stories and then moved on to things like the Alice in Wonderland movies that he's done recently uh, that are just like overflowing with colors and digital effects and stuff. But really, like that's you can even see those origins here because there's so much color. They're just all practical. They're not uh, like digitally uh, enhanced or anything. Um, And I think this movie is also kind of a perfect uh, example of the differences in or, or the range of Tim Burton style because you literally have the contrast between the pastel uh, overly uh, kind of flowery town and the gothic castle. I mean, that's a stark contrast that the film brings out a lot. And when you go into the castle, it's literally like straight out of Dracula from the 30s. Yes. And it's like it's 
that German expressionism thing brought to the modern day. And it's just those extremes kind of contrasting are uh, what brings out this story, kind of the the hypocritism of the um, kind of normal suburban people and then how they they pretend to accept Edward Scissorhands into their society until they can find any kind of dirt on him. Then they run him out of town. Yep. Um, Which, you know, I was going to say something that was very interesting about the film is how, you know, you were comparing it to that of like Beauty and the Beast and such. But the huge difference there is it turns it on its head. And instead of at first seeing him as a beast, they were a little freaked out by him at first, but almost immediately they're like, well, we could use this guy. Yeah. It becomes like almost an exploitation uh, kind of thing where um, it's almost like like they brought the beast home with them and, uh, <laughs> and put him to work instead of kind of getting locked in his castle. Uh, so yeah, it's really interesting how you can see those elements and yet they're done in a non stereotypical kind of way. I think one of the reasons that you think of this as a romance film, uh, Jason, is that these mm. films became very popular. I think to a certain degree still are among a certain uh, set of teenage, um, Teenage women, and you know, some men, mm-hmm. <laughs> who identified with Winona Ryder a whole yes. lot, and were also very much, you know, the manic pixie sad boy Johnny Depp was <laughs> yep. very oh, yeah. much their type, and that's what these movies became. It was like, here's, here's a romance lead that's different from all the rest that you've seen in a typical teenage movie from the 1990s or early 2000s. Um, yeah. Here's, it here's satisfies something different your... It satisfies your flowery nature and your like hidden gothic nature all at the same time. Well, funny enough, I I was looking at the Wikipedia page, just taking a gander, and I, I was looking at the poster and the way they marketed it, and it shows. This is why I thought that, like, it shows Edward Scissorhands standing there behind, you know, holding uh-huh. Winona Ryder, With and she's just kind of looking all fragile and not even a blue sky. It was almost like you, you ever seen those romantic comedy posters where you got the white background uh-huh. and you got the two, you know, love interests. It was that. Yeah. And yeah, it was, yeah. It is. it's kind of strange because there's several posters for for Edward Scissorhands and they're all they kind of take on different elements. Some of mm-hmm. them are very dark and they like prominently show his scissors in his hands. Some of them are like you're talking about more romantic essentially because the story incorporates all of those things um, together. And it's really interesting. So this is actually the only one of the three that is an original story. And apparently Tim Burton came up with this idea like when he was in high school, he came up with the uh kind of seeds of the idea and then flesh them out once he got more of a platform. Um, cause this is still one of his pretty early movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's interesting that, uh, we can see like how interested he is in fairy tales and that kind of thing. in some of the later movies, even with, uh, sleepy hollow and the history behind Sweeney Todd, um, it's almost as if we underestimated what he could possibly do because yeah. we're so used to seeing, you know, the stereotypical Tim Burton fair. Yeah, and all the adaptations that he does. But, you know, he when he puts his mind to creating his own movie, he kind of makes it in the same vein and makes something kind of fresh and new. And, of course, we got to talk about Johnny Depp because oh, he's yes. in all of these movies. He's kind of like uh, he's the uh, uh, Robert De Niro of our Martin Scorsese episode. He's very much the poster <laughs> boy for most Tim Burton films, especially these days. Yeah, yeah, and especially in the old days when mm-hmm. they had so many collaborations like these. Um, so, you know, we've got Johnny Depp as this very sheltered, like literally sheltered character um, who uh, is kind of taught manners by his quote-unquote father, his creator guy, and uh, and then his creator dies before he can give him his hands, and so then he's kind of thrown out into the world and he's got to try and... Uh, got to try and make it. So he's not like completely oblivious. He knows how mm-hmm. to interact with people. He tries to be polite. Like the great scene whenever he's trying to uh, pick up the peas and the carrots. Oh my with lord! His <laughs> oh my um, stomach was churning the whole time. I was like, it oh. was so sad because they're they're all ignoring it. Like uh, that happens like, the whole him, time. I know. It's it's kind of got that um, almost a commentary on the way that we treat uh, people who are, I guess to use modern vernacular, differently abled. Mm. Um, So, and you've got like that old guy who's like, don't let anyone ever tell you that you're crippled or anything. Oh yeah, that's like immediately what he says. And he goes, uh, where's that cripple? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's showing the hypocrisy from that side. But just, I think that this movie does a really good job of uh, just the blocking, the, the, the blocking in each individual scene is pretty genius because there, there are scenes where, um, 
like the mom and the daughter are making the bed after he's kind of poked holes in the waterbed and <laughs> they're throwing dialogue back and forth while they're doing this. And same thing with the, with the dinner scene where he's like trying to eat and they're all like throwing dialogue and kind of ignoring him while he's like so focused on just getting a flipping pee to his mouth because he's got, <laughs> he's got these scissors for hands. Um, so I think that this one shows a really good job of Tim Burton just uh, using his directing to contrast the the blocking and the dialogue and making it all uh, come together really well. Absolutely. And Johnny Depp really is the guy who exemplifies what Tim Burton is trying to say because just the way that Johnny Depp acts, which first of all, I think we talked about this too, how it's like he's slowly trying to figure out what Johnny Depp is going to become yeah, it's years. interesting to watch the characters in this because, you know, we're so used to him as like uh, the Captain Jack Sparrow character mm. or just like the quirky, like flamboyant character uh, that these almost is like these three movies are kind of like a progression of him coming out of his shell in a way. Um, and of course, that shows his range. But I think it's also kind of an interesting just metaphor for his career. Sure. Because in this one, he's so shy and he's so like trying to learn how to just interact with people Social that he doesn't, he doesn't have a lot of those ticks. You can still see Johnny Depp in there, of course, because it is. Um, but as we watch these other movies, we kind of see him adding more of these elements that become kind of his trademarks uh, nowadays in his career. Absolutely. And to go back to how Johnny Depp exemplifies what, you know, Tim Burton is trying to say, you know, just like the, the little subtleties and like how he holds his, his face together, basically, like uh -huh. his, the lip thing that he does. Yeah, right? his mouth is kind of, it's got this interesting, uh, I don't know, this kind of uh, pinched, pinched very, look very to it. Very much pinched, like very small reactions to things. and It's very which, subtle. Which when, the, of course, the film gets to that climatic ending and you start seeing him get angry, it you feel that yeah. because the whole time he's not said very much. He's not reacted very much. And Johnny Depp does a great job at bringing that out later in the film. All right. So with that, let's move on to uh, Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow from 1999. In 1799, Ichabod Crane, a constable for the New York City Police, is sent to the mysterious village of Sleepy Hollow to investigate a series of apparently supernatural murders involving decapitations that led to a well-known ghostly presence. All right, so being me, I have to kind of kick this conversation off with uh, the elements of the adaptation uh, because this is a really classic um, short story, and I think it's really interesting what Tim Burton does to it because I think that nowadays the common conception of... Uh, the story of Sleepy Hollow is this one. It's this kind of uh, supernatural horror kind of a story. But when you actually go back and read Washington Irving's story, it's nothing like that at all. It's this almost whimsical kind of uh, romance where this schoolmaster, Ichabod Crane, who comes to this town fairly new and just kind of like he's basically a loafer going around living with all the people. And then he falls in love with one of the girls in the town. And then the big jock guy, uh, is kind of his competition mm. for her affections. And all these stories go around about the headless horseman and stuff and how he got his head shot off by a cannonball and he rides around trying to find it at night. Uh, so Brom, the, the competing love interest who shows up in this movie a little bit, um, he dresses up as the Headless Horseman and uh, throws a pumpkin at Ichabod Crane like it's a head. And he gets so scared that he runs away, um, which is actually paid homage to in the movie. Mm. But other than that, he kind of <laughs> just takes, he takes the legend and like, all right, what happens if this was real? And then he just like throws all these supernatural elements into it, almost to a, a comic tongue in cheek level. There's just so much. Oh, that, yes. Uh, it's like when I originally watched it, I was like, man, this is just ridiculous. But now I'm like, is he, is this like a satirical portrayal? Cause it's like, it's almost too ridiculous. I think it does feel like that. And if you look at Johnny Depp's, uh, portrayals, Ichabod Crane, it's a little over the type top in certain ways. Like it's a little tongue in cheek. It's almost like he's, um, jimming the camera to borrow parlance from, uh, the office occasionally, except oh, yeah. you know, he doesn't actually know that the camera's there. Like his kind reaction to things, almost a self-aware thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like he passes out in very funny ways, or like he recoils yes. and like, but not uh, in a jump scary way. Like he's just kind of grossed out by things. Uh -huh. um, not to say that there aren't moments of genuine tension and fear in the movie, um, but it is very. It's a movie that functions on different levels, and the entire time I was watching it, and granted, I was on a lot of painkillers at the time. I kept thinking, 
oh man, this feels like a modern day pilot for a TV show. Yeah, huh. it's true. And I think they did a Sleepy Hollow TV show recently, didn't they? They did. They did. They did. Like, it felt like they were setting up these characters to have these kind of like cheeky interactions and relationships with each other. And they were going to go be investigate off of. really, really, you know, creepy stuff. But they always kind of shrug it off because they know better. And one of them's a yeah. good witch and stuff. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, like those elements of Johnny Depp's character where, you know, they turn him from a schoolmaster in the story into a detective, uh, almost Sherlock Holmes level, mm-hmm. um, where, but then they also give him this element where he's squeamish, he's he's afraid of blood and he, pass, he faints at the sight of uh, blood, but he's always like demanding for autopsies and investigating into these things. And I was like, that's such a weird contradiction in his character that... Um, Really, I guess the only point of him being that squeamish is just like these little comic relief moments Mm. Um, because they just they just add comedy to it as opposed to it being like a serious investigation all the way through. And we can handle whatever uh, gross and crazy stuff happens, which a lot of gross and crazy stuff does happen. (laughs) Well, now that I think about it and uh, I was talking to you earlier about the, the Disney animated short that came out like. Probably, I'm guessing in the 50s, I've had a ballpark. I don't know if you've seen it, Alex, the uh, Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. It's like a combined. Mm, they combine like it yes. with Wind in the Willows? Yes. It, it, yeah, oh, it's that's the, it tells the Wind in the Willows. And then it's also right after that, it goes into Ichabod. That's interesting. Ichabod story. So anyways, that said, I really do feel like Tim Burton wanted to channel the Ichabod in that animated short because he is skittish. There's actually a scene well, that, in the that movie. That seems more like the character from the story because in the story mm. they describe him as very comical. Like he's all lanky. He's like very his lanky. His elbows and knees are sticking out. Like I think Washington Irving describes him as like his knees almost hit his chin when he's riding in the saddle. Yes. And oh, kind of in thing. fact, they show that in the animated oh, really? film. Okay. They draw him that way. There's a scene where he's riding the horse and the, uh-huh. the knees are up to his face. Um, but yeah, like in specific, like there's a scene where, you know, in the animated short where Brahm is trying to scare Ichabod. And so he's telling him the story of the headless horseman uh-huh. and Ichabod has like the cup of tea and it's shaking and the tea's spilling everywhere. And there's a scene in the movie where that very thing kind of uh, happens. Yeah. If you remember, he's in the room with the judges or, you know, the guys with the wigs uh-huh. and he's, you know, got the tea cup and it's shaking and there's like little nods like that throughout yeah. the film. And, um, I wonder what y'all's thought is, but I'm guessing y'all feel like that kind of kills the mood that they're going for. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they're trying to keep that lightheartedness from the story and then bring it as dark as they do because mm. it gets so dark um, that it just felt disjointed. And that's why I feel like it had to have been done tongue in cheek, yes. kind of uh, nod to the camera, like you were saying, Alex, uh, mode, because they just feel so different. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tim Burton's always trying to splice together the whimsical and the dark uh-huh. Uh, kind of like the fantastical and the kind of gritty, kind of, you know, just really gory at times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, yes. you know, trying Hence to mix those all together is quite the balancing act. And if you look at something like Edward Scissorhands, I think it's pulled off incredibly well. Oh, uh, in Sleepy Hollow, I think there's some beats where you go, ah. Yeah. I literally laughed out loud at some of the, like, scary parts, quote unquote, um, you know, Tim Burton loves his eye popping graphics and we get that again with uh, one of the witches in this. Um, and also whenever the Headless Horseman gets his head back. Oh, and my God. Yeah, like I didn't even realize that happened. Of him like putting so his skin funny. back on or something. Um, and these are, you know, I guess this is late 90s graphics now. But, you know, this is not I don't know what the budget comparison is, but this is not the Matrix by any means <laughs> as far as the, the quality of the graphics. Um, yeah, it didn't age well. Um but one of the things I want to bring up is as far as like the tone, because a big part of the tone is the visual style. And since this movie has basically none of the color that Edward Scissorhands does, uh, this is one of the movies where you get that idea of Tim Burton as a very dark director Absolutely. because this movie is very devoid of color. It's very, um, uh, I can't remember the the right term for it, but when you're shooting a film, you would do like a, you do like a wash, what, uh, like a wash on the film. Um, and actually the, the cinematographer on this film is, uh, Emmanuel Lubezki, uh, who has won several Oscars for cinematography. Um, and we talked about, I believe with, uh, in our Mexico episode, but, uh, so it's, it's done very well. It's very beautiful, but it's also, it's just dark all the way through. There's not that kind of, there's not a visual mixing of 
whimsy and gothic. It's all in the dialogue. And I think the fact that it doesn't come through in the visuals is part of what makes that that contrast harder to swallow. Mm. So uh, another thing, kind of going back to Jason, the part where you talk about his tea kind of yes. following. That's like near the very beginning of the of the movie when they just kind of lay out the whole legend. You know, I thought yes, that was do. very interesting for a movie that is uh, a mystery. And it's, it's like you were trying to you were trying to like figure out all these things. The legend of the Headless Horseman is not part of the mystery at all. Not like at all. In the first 15 minutes, uh, they sit Ichabod Crane down and they tell him the whole story. Not like, oh, this is a legend, but like, oh, this is a real thing that actually <laughs> happened. Um, and it's all just like it's just laid out in a long flashback. Uh, where Christopher Walken has this great uh, performance. Oh as, my goodness! Um, <laughs> as the Hessian that gets decapitated and goes around like decapitating people, you know, where where you could make it this big mystery about who <sighs> the headless horseman is and how, uh, you know, how he's kind of this mysterious figure that kind of shows up. Is he there or is he not? They really just they don't make that an option at all. They mm. tell you the whole story. They show you the headless horseman in the first like two minutes in the very beginning of the movie when he comes and kills the two guys, the coachman <laughs> and his. Uh, and his driver or whatever. Um, they could have at least hidden his face, everything. Well, he but didn't you, have a face, but... True. But, uh, but in the legend part, yeah, in the flashback, yeah. you're right. He's got Christopher Walken with the sharpened teeth and they all that. gave it away, and I wish they had, like, waited until the very end to reveal Christopher Walken. I think that would have been even more funny. Yeah, yeah, especially <laughs> Just, playing but, off yeah. that head thing. It's like... Uh, if we're going to show his face at the end, then maybe we kind of hide his face almost in an eye of the beholder kind of thing. Cause mm-hmm. I got to get my twilight zone references in there. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> just kind of like hide his face, uh, in the flashback and just make that a mystery at least. Um, but they just kind of threw it all out there and then we're, we're left with, um, just the force of the mystery that Tim Burton is bringing to this because all the mystery of Washington Irving's story is kind of sucked out in the first couple yeah. minutes of the movie. It does feel like the goal for this film really was to be, as you were saying, tongue in cheek, to be remembered as something you can watch during Halloween, you know, just for yeah, fun, yeah. you know, and you know, it's yeah. it almost like goes down a, a Halloween checklist. <laughs> like Jack o' Lantern, witches, uh, headless horsemen, uh, detectives, you know, autumn leaves, check. Yeah, yeah. Gore tree. Gore tree. Oh God, the gore tree. That is the coolest. You gotta come on. That was super yeah, the, cool. Uh, the tree birth. Ugh. He like births the headless horseman. <laughs> it's so weird. That was really freaky on the painkillers, guys. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Oh, Alex. Oh my God. Yeah, the entire time that you guys were just talking about VFX, I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. It looked great to me. <laughs> it yeah. really popped out of the screen. Yeah, man. Some of the elements Alex are talking about might have been just fever dream. We don't know. Maybe this movie didn't exist. We're all just playing into his uh, his fantasy. We're going to go yeah, on Little possible. Island Drive on Tim Burton. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So with all that being said, let's move on to uh, Sweeney Todd. My favorite. Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street from 2007. After 15 years of imprisonment for a false accusation, the newly named Sweeney Todd arrives to London to return to his beautiful wife Lucy and beloved child Joanna. But when he finds out that Lucy poisoned herself, he seeks to get revenge on the man who took his entire life away in a plot so devilishly cruel and ironic, it will leave you begging for seconds. All right, Sweeney Todd, guys. My favorite for numerous reasons. Start Mostly, listing them. Tell me what. Tell me why. I'll, we'll we'll just go through them. Uh, the musical aspect. It's some of my favorite. It's so memorable. And I believe Alan Menken was the guy who wrote, or rather, I guess the word you would use is. Um, well, wouldn't they have taken Stephen Sondheim's music? Yes. So uh, there's a word for that. It's uh, he rearranged arranged. it. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, okay, there you okay. go. Yeah. He arranged the music. He you know composed a lot of the soundtrack, of course. Um, Musical. So musical. Absolutely, man. That's good. Good stuff. Which and is everyone, interesting to see Tim Burton doing a musical. Yes. And which like, just immediately gives a whimsical aspect to anything, even mm-hmm. if it's a movie about pe- slitting people's throats and, and selling feeding them, them meat to pies. The, you yeah. know, everybody else. So he set it's, up pretty well already off the bat to mix his darkness and his whimsicalness right. from the get go. Like, it's a preset sale like you're good to go it's hard to fuck up <laughs> yeah from the first five minutes when johnny depp starts singing you're like all right i got this <laughs> it's wonderful because everyone is is actually singing which you know in true musical fashion that's what you know you do you you sing even if you can't you know you that's uh-huh. your character 
And really, everyone sounds wonderful. Like, it doesn't yeah, sound do. like it's there's surprising. any harsh tuning or anything. Yeah, because we've talked about, um, uh, you know, My Fair Lady on the podcast before. And even that, uh, you know, several of the characters, including Audrey Hepburn, were dubbed over. Even mm. though Audrey Hepburn didn't have a bad voice, it just wasn't necessarily like a Broadway professional voice. What they wanted. Um, yeah, but here you have Johnny Depp singing, you have Helena Bonham Carter singing, you have friggin' Alan Rickman singing. <laughs> oh my gosh, if Alan Rickman's singing, no one has an excuse. <laughs> know, you know right? what I mean? But that's what makes it all so wonderful. You could tell everyone has a theatrical background. And uh, being that a lot of them are British actors, it just it feels authentic when you watch them being this like droll, like I guess 1800s London or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it it feels authentic. And um, another element that I really really love is they did like to sing in 1800s London. <laughs> I mean, what else could you, you do when you're so somehow. depressed all the time? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You could eat a meat pie. You could eat a meat pie. <laughs> How's your appetite holding up, guys? Um, you know, when we last year, I'll tell you this. You go for <laughs> Me and my right wife now. to celebrate it. Uh, we watched. We were celebrating Halloween, so we ate chicken pot pies whilst watching the film. It was brilliant. Felt, uh, felt that's good. so messed up. Oh man, <laughs> living on the edge. Jeez. Absolutely, man. So to talk about. Johnny Depp, because, you know, of course, Johnny Depp is, you know, one of the ongoing th- themes of this entire, you know, podcast. You know, I was looking, I picked films that all had Johnny Depp in it just to kind of have a cohesiveness to it. Um, this is my favorite Johnny Depp performance. Be- oh, completely? Completely. Oh, and wow. it has a lot to do with what I was talking about with Edward Scissorhands. There's just initial buildup. And when it does get to the point where, you know, he does kill Judge Turpin at the very end, he finally gets that taste of blood. He, he gets it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole time he's just he's carrying himself with a little bit more grace and he's, he's keeping it all internal and he's just waiting for that moment to pounce. And then when he does, it's oh, it's just you feel it burning yeah. in your blood. It's interesting because I was looking up um, like some some trivia and stuff on IMDb, but apparently uh, Tim Burton talks about how the story uh, with Benjamin Parker is so internal. Like all of his motivations are so internal. Benjamin Parker being the original name of Sweeney Todd. Mm. Um, and so because there is all of that just like emotional buildup, he basically uses the excessive blood as a catharsis. Yes. He uses that as your release. It's almost like. It, it kind of takes the place of comic relief, which there is some in the movie, but also there's just that like, you know, you've got all these emotions bubbling up and then slice. Okay. We got to see the, you know, well, like the we way talk the about blood with, pours out too, at least for the normal, the normal throat cutting. If well, there's several different ways that it, that it comes out of the throat. So. True. True. At least in this film, it's, there's like a clean cut and it just kind of rains down the neck. Uh-huh. And uh, you're right. That's a very interesting to say because it, it feels very like, ha, ah, just like watching it pour uh-huh. on down. And the way that the blood, uh, you described it as uncanny valley, which I've never heard blood <laughs> described that way. But it's perfect because it's so bright. And, yeah, the color of it. Um, it, it plays really well to have that color as a metaphor, if uh-huh. that makes sense. Um, if it had just been the normal color of blood, I don't think it would have been as excessive feeling. Yeah. I mean, of course, blood's and it's not going to say that that's but, intentional, but mm. it's just one of those things where, um, and Alex, we've talked about the color of blood before, like technicolor blood is, is similar color to the way that we see here. Oh, um, yes. But there's like, there's always that either too dark or too bright element of, of blood. That's like, uh, I don't know that I've seen a movie that like really nails it where it's like, oh man, that guy just got cut. Yeah. Um, but, uh. Yeah, so like that excessiveness, and that's most of the color in the movie too. So again, this movie is very dark, uh, with the the blacks and the browns and the and the reds come out with yes. the blood. That is our main pop of color, uh, like we've been talking about with the way that Tim Burton uses his color. But uh, even though there aren't a lot of like really bright and colorful scenes, the only one I can think of is when they're fantasizing about living on the beach and all that kind of stuff, Privacy, which actually Mr. feels. Todd. It actually feels out of place a little bit. Yes. But that's the point. It's a break. It's uh, kind of them moving on with their life. It's what their life could be. It's right before the climax. So. And it is. It's right before it gets really dark. So that's a little bit of a catharsis, too. Um, but, yeah, I think that plus the uh, the music kind of compensates for the fact that we don't have a lot of color in adding that whimsy like we've been talking about. So it is dark, but it's excessively dark and gory. To a point is for a point. 
Absolutely. So I think Tim Burton in this film especially had a lot of fun with grossing people out. And from the very first moment you walked into, you know, Mrs. Lovett's pie shop, the set design and the props that were used, just everything, it, it really exemplifies yeah. the gross out stuff of this film. Like When just, she's like kneading butt, like cockroaches into the dough that she's using. <laughs> she's just, it's just, there it is. And that's the what green you do. slime that's like not even explained that it's meat at all. Oh, except yeah. For the fact There's that only it's one thing that's pie. implied is that she made it out of cats. Oh, okay. That's, that's about, about all that. you know. You don't know what the slime is. Yeah, yeah. it's mm, gross. And cat. <laughs> <laughs> cat slime. <laughs> Um, and then she feeds it to Johnny Depp in the song and then he eats it and he's just like, yeah, he, he grimaces <laughs> in that way. And that's an interesting thing about Johnny Depp's performance here, because this is kind of the culmination that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's not as uh, like I was saying, flamboyant as some of his other characters like the Mad Hatter or what have you um, in these fantasy roles. Well, and it's even not as uh, over the top reactive like his Sleepy Hollow role, because he, yeah. he's very jumpy. And, uh, yeah, you know. but it is. Um, it is more kind of, I guess the character is more confident. It's, he's very dark and brooding. So a lot of times he has kind of that almost introvertiveness, but also, um, you know, when he gets to those moments where, you know, he thinks he's got his guy or he's coming up with an idea to, that will help him get there, you know. You can see it. It's big. It's uh, and it has to be because it, you know you're coming from a musical, so all stage stuff is is big and large. Yep. Um, and Johnny Epiphany, Depp gets to especially. lean into that a little bit more in this movie than he does in the other two. Yeah, yeah. That think that it's a grid. It's it's it, this is why Johnny Depp works with this musical because, for example, the Epiphany, where you know he's, you know, he lost his chance at Judge Turpin the first time, and this now he's just like, I, I, what am I going to do? What am I going to do about this? And he's just lamenting about everything that's happened up to this point, and then he realizes, I I could do something about it, you know, and uh, just yeah. just that big performance that he gives, and it's it's just so I don't know. I feel so lame. I feel like it's a cop out thing to say, but it's so much fun to watch. It is. It is a lot of fun. Just seeing him. Go all out, like everything that he's has led up to this point, I feel like. And, you know, I'm sure he's had other movies that are possibly better than this. But from my point of view, I feel like it was all leading up to this film. It's like it's theater. It's yeah. it's all the stuff that he was doing with Tim Burton. It's all those little know, subtleties Jason, in his acting. that one where he was a lizard. <laughs> what movie Which, was? Oh, oh, Rango. <laughs> I genuinely enjoy Rango, unironically. I have not seen Rango. Okay, we got to fix that. That oh is my such gosh. a great just homage to the Western genre. All right. Um, that sounds good then. I do like that we get to see a sampling from Helen and Bottom Carter in this movie. And yes. we got to see oh a sampling gosh. of Let's Winona Ryder in Edward Scissorhands. Because Winona Ryder is kind of like the female lead muse for Tim Burton's early career and then it kind of mm. transitions into uh-huh. Helen and Bottom Carter later on. That and, is an interesting thing. And there's a personal uh, you know, connection because Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp had a relationship for a long they time. Did. And Helen and Bottom Carter and Tim Burton were married during the time of uh, Sweeney Todd. I think the only one of the ones that we're talking about today. But uh, <laughs> we, Jason and I watched Sweeney Todd together and we were looking up trivia and apparently Helen and Bottom Carter was pregnant with uh, their second child yeah. uh, during the filming. And she was very concerned that, um, you know, you could pick up on some of those changes in her body that were happening throughout the film. And since they didn't shoot it in order, it's not very consistent, um, which you don't really notice until like you're like, oh, hey, yeah, it is a little bit different in the scene <laughs> than it was before. I joked about like taking the film and doing a supercut of just like yeah, her body it. changing <laughs> over the pregnant period. That's too funny. But seriously, I th- we should talk about Helena Bonham or Carter real quick. I know we're sitting on Sweeney Todd for a while, but this, there's a lot to take in with this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Helena Bonham Carter, it's interesting seeing her too. And, you know, I don't know if y'all have done any movies where she's been involved, but she started off as well doing more theatrical type films. There's a movie, uh, Room with a View, where she kind of plays this really just like... Um, regal kind of character, you know, almost pride and prejudice kind of type of dialogue. And, uh, it's interesting seeing her start there and then over time evolve into where she is now, where she's mostly known for her Gothic kind of stuff. Um, well, she's kind of, I mean, I don't think that's her whole image. Cause you know, she's done things like, uh, uh, the King's speech and stuff like that, where she kind of gets yeah. back to 
more of a, a regal and that's a very much prim and proper, more mm. modern, but a, a take on British, you know, British culture. Shoot. I don't even know where to go with that. I love this film. I really do. <laughs> I like that. It's, it's a tale of revenge, but it's, and you know, this isn't necessarily a unique thing um, in tales of revenge, but I like tales of revenge where the ideal of revenge becomes so all consuming that, uh, it starts eating itself. Like the character ah, yes. becomes yeah. so vengeful that he, the, the fire that he's casting upon others turns on himself until every possibility of happiness in the future is destroyed. Yeah. And that, yeah, this is a perfect movie for that because, you know, uh, he's kind of by the end and we're going to get way into spoilers at this point, but, um, by the end he's, uh, um, you know, made this new life with Helena Bottom Carter's character. He's kind of given up all hope. Uh, he's finally got his got his man, and then he realizes that Helena Bottom Carter has lied to him about his wife. Yes, the whole reason for his revenge is not even as it, like she's still alive. She's still there, and she knew it, but he's killed her, <laughs> unknowing who she is. And uh, so then he just turns on Helena Bonham Carter, pushes her into the furnace. Um, so literally those fires of revenge, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's searching for that blood of that, that catharsis, that's that blood flow. But typically you find that once the blood starts flowing, it might feel good, but it's hard to make it stop. Yeah. Yeah. Which interestingly enough, at the very end of the film, uh, when he kind of, when Toby comes out of the sewer, you know, the little kid that they were kind of taking in, um, we don't know where he is for most of the ending until like that very last moment where after, you know, Helena Bonham Carter's character, Mrs. And Lovett he's is dead. earlier vowed his, vowed to protect her. Yes. Helena Bonham Carter's character. Yeah, the little kid Toby vowed to protect Mrs. Lovett. So he kind of comes out of the shadows and, you know, in an interesting turn of events, slits Johnny Depp's or Miss Sweeney Todd's throat. Uh-huh. But if you look at Sweeney Todd, he kind of leans back into it. He knows Toby's behind him. Yeah. And he just kind of leans his neck back and then Toby takes the cut and it's the final spilling of blood and it kind of goes over, you know, his dead wife. And yeah, um, yeah, just kind of playing off what you were saying, Alex. It's like almost as if his own blood is that resolve. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that poor kid. <laughs> Dude, he looked like a mess. I was like, yeah. where's his story? <laughs> like, what does he do? <laughs> it's amazing there hasn't been a sequel. No, but one of the other uh, story elements that I kind of picked up on this time that I remember from the first time, but it's been a while since I watched it, is the uh, the foil between Johnny Depp and Judge Turpin, Mm. because uh, I picked up a lot more this time on the fact that Judge Turpin has this mindset of. Uh, and he literally says in the movie, everyone has done something that they deserve hanging for. So like you literally see him condemn this little like 10 year old boy to hang. Uh, and he's just got this mindset that everyone deserves to die. Everything uh, is terrible. And, you know, he's like the he's like the worst character there is. Obviously, he's the villain. Um, but Johnny Depp gets the same thing. And he has uh, a exactly. song about, He literally says that in a song. The whole deserve to die. Like, uh, everyone yeah. deserves to die. Um, and so. They're, they're literally foils of each other and they talk about it too. They say uh, whenever at the very end when they meet and uh, Johnny Depp says it's nice to meet someone who has similar tastes mm. um, in women and stuff like that because obviously Judge Turpin stole his wife um, and his daughter uh, but they also are coming from the exact same worldview and those worldviews kind of clash at the end. Johnny Depp is just being much more literal doing practically the same thing that Judge Turpin is doing because Judge Turpin is... Uh, indirectly killing all of these people in a similar way. And we don't get as deep into Judge Turpin's side, but we get the sense that they are two sides of the same coin. I've never thought of it that way. And it actually makes perfect sense. In fact, for most of the, most of the film, those, that very idea is separated. Like you'll see their scenes separated and you'll get their point of view. But there's that part in the movie that the very first time that, you know, Sweeney has Judge Turpin in his barber chair where they're singing that song, Pretty Women. And they're both um, musing over the idea of their ideal, beautiful yeah. woman. It's right there in your face. That makes so much sense. That's fascinating. Yeah. And it also brings up this really interesting idea that uh, this movie has no good guy. You know, mm. they're, 
And it's not that Sweeney Todd is an anti-hero, like we've talked about with a lot of um, you know noir films and Hitchcock films, where you have someone who's not necessarily making the right choices, but he's still like following his convictions and stuff like that, which Sweeney Todd does, but not in a uh, in any kind of heroic way whatsoever. Yeah. It's just maniacal. Um, but we keep watching. Because I think it boils down to what you said earlier. It's fun, you know, yes. and we're revealing a dark side of humanity um, in a very literal sense. But uh, I think it kind of tunes in to everyone's like darker side a little bit. You yeah. want to feel for Sweeney, yeah. even though, you know, in your right mind, this is messed up yeah. to no end. But you care because you see it from his side. You know, his wife was... And you have that sympathy at the beginning. Yes, absolutely. And I think that carries on. But then there's that shift where you start siding a little bit more with Toby. And then right after that moment where it clicks with Toby, Helena... or Because things start getting out of hand. You see them as monsters at that point. Absolutely. And it's frightening. There's that awesome scene where his daughter actually comes up not knowing who Sweeney Todd is. And they Uh both finally meet up. And of course, Sweeney doesn't realize this and Joanna doesn't realize this. But it's he's about to kill her like that. This guy's a monster. Yeah. And uh, I just love how like the the things eventually kind of come back to reality for the viewer. Um, I was going to say something else interesting, too. Uh, My wife pointed this out, how at the very beginning, of course, you know, when he was when his wife was alive, it was almost as if his you know, he was in love with her, you know, like all that. But after everything that happened 15 years later, it was. It was almost as if he was in love with the idea of uh-huh. Lucy and being with his daughter. He was in love with the idea of that, that he couldn't see how things were then. He wasn't willing to start anew. He wanted that past, which, of course, is why he does what he does. But I think there's an interesting, um, maybe an argument against that in the fact hmm. that he finds out that uh, the crazy, cripple, like, uh, distorted face woman from the street is his wife. And he gets so mad um, because and you kind of get this sense that if he had known, he would have tried to reconcile and he would have been with her. Um, Otherwise, he wouldn't have been that mad if if he was so obsessed with this, this perfect ideal of his wife from the beginning, then seeing her the way she is now probably would have turned like kind of destroyed his whole illusion. But Mm. he was so angry that he wasn't able to be with her, even the way that she is, that uh, it kind of just pushes him over the edge and ends up with his demise. That's fascinating. Yeah. So this it's interesting how many layers are in this, which comes from a story that's basically um, one of the old just pulp gothic. <laughs> right. There's so many stories. things. It's turned into somewhat of a character study. Yeah. All right, guys. So let's move on to overall notes. And I think there's a couple things that have been coming up a lot already, such as a Johnny Depp. Um, <laughs> also the different aesthetics and uh, the different, you know, Clearly, there are there are types of stories that um, Tim Burton is very interested in telling and stories that he's very good at telling. Um, So I guess, uh, you know, what what are we taking away from Tim Burton's career as a whole or at least these more gothic sides? Because we haven't talked about he has several other films that are much lighter, have a very different tone. But what what are we thinking about Tim Burton's gothic side of him, especially from these early 90s and 2000s films? He likes fantastical uh, subjects. He likes um, uh, very. He likes mixing in the whimsical touch to everything he does. Uh, he likes very big feeling theatrical moments. Um, even in a film like Edward Scissorhands, which is fairly scaled down, you know the climax feels very theatrical, very large. Oh yes. yeah. Um, so yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he's he's a contradiction within himself, and that shows. Uh, in, in the films that he makes and sometimes it works very well and sometimes it misses the mark a bit and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but he goes for it with all these guys and mm. I think I think what, we're, what we realize is that, you know, there is this common perception of Tim Burton as the the dark and gothic guy but I think that's, that undersells him on a lot of points. Absolutely. And again, it's not even just the aesthetic of you know, of the darkness and the colors that he used. It's, it's how he's able to make you relate to a character. Like yet from face value, you just see the dark side of things. But what he really wants you to do is relate to these characters and see yourself in these characters. That speaks heavily with Edward Scissorhands. You know, he's a creepy looking dude, but you know, he's able, 
immediately he he wants you to be able to feel for him and that's the whole movie you know that's something you'd feel like would happen maybe later in the film but that's from the get-go you feel for edward scissorhands so not just aesthetic uh is he able to make you know a contrast between like light and dark you know and all that stuff he's able to do that with the characters and the emotions that they give off as well he even makes the headless horseman almost sympathetic by the end of very Sleepy much Hollow so too, i mean during the i mean yeah during the um that when you're first introduced to him when he was telling the story uh there's that scene where he's in the woods and he runs into the two little girls and in your mind you're like oh he's gonna kill them but he's just kind of like shh you know what I mean? And of course, the girls kind of mess everything up. But yeah, he has by the end, you're this. like, why didn't you kill them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, we would have been all right with that. Uh, no, I do not like to kill children. Do not <laughs> twist my words. Unless they turn into evil witches that control you and to kill other people. Too late. It's on record. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he really knows how to take a super dark character more so not just what they do, but also how they act and how they look and then make them into something that you could potentially relate to. Yeah. Which, of course, Sweeney Todd is another great example of that. He tunes into that dark side of the human brain and he just makes you feel for him. And I think I think he's really, really good at that. And I think there's another common conception to see uh, Tim Burton or maybe it's just me as like someone who overuses the visual effects. They he like with the modern films, like from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, basically on to Alice in Wonderland and this some current of other, decade of Tim Burton films, really. Yeah, they're very heavy on the CG and, uh, you know, specifically computer generated effects. But we can kind of see that he's evolved with effects. You know, Edward Scissorhands is full of effects um, of one way or another. They're just all practical and they're all very cheap because mm-hmm. he didn't have as much of a budget or a following at that point. And then we get to Sleepy Hollow and we can see him throwing in a ton of visual effects um, that may or may not have played off as well. And then even in Sweeney Todd, you know, that opening sequence uh, oh, where yeah. we're going through the gears and following the blood. And it's like it looks so cheesy nowadays because the the effects aren't to the caliber that they are now. Um, I'd say even worse than that. Like that was cool because, I mean, that was the opening sequence. It's fine. Like I thought you were going to mention the scene where like it's an exposition yeah, this where it kind of takes you through the city and it's all fast paced and it's, there's a lot of motion blur and it just hurts to look at. Yeah, that really didn't age well. It it hurts to look at now. It hurt to look yeah, at when we then. were watching it. I was thinking of like like it feels like a modern video game cutscene because uh-huh. it's just like this whole city of London that's all computer generated and the camera is just like weaving in and out of it. Um, but you know, Sweeney Todd just feels so. Uh, staged an artificial anyway that's part of its charm that i don't think that it suffers too much from Mm -hmm. that and especially because the gore is supposed to be so over the top that that those those bright colors and that um that uh, kind of fake effect again that uncanny valley of knowing that it's not real blood kind of uh they don't really detract from the story because you get the point the the idea of the blood is more important than believing that the blood is real they want it to be as satisfying as it looks <laughs> when it comes out of the necks. So, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, we've got to talk about all of uh, Tim Burton's collaborations, you know, because there are several that we talked about in uh, these movies. Uh, Winona Ryder is in many of uh, Tim Burton's films. Helena Bonham Carter is in several. Obviously, Johnny Depp, but also uh, collaborators like uh, Danny Elfman. Oh, yes. Uh, who does... Almost all of Almost Tim Burton's all scores. Music. I don't He's, know yeah. what movies he has not done. Um, but I think Danny Elfman is kind of, I don't know if he has his perception from working from Tim Burton so much, but he's got this really great just uh, tone of this eerie kind of uh, audio atmosphere, not even like making tunes, you know, like you think of John Williams and you can think of these specific tunes, but, mm-hmm. uh, Danny Elfman is a little better at just creating this atmosphere and this feeling, even if you can't pick out like the music on its own. You hear it and you think, oh yeah, this is from a Tim Burton film. I've heard uh-huh. this before. And a lot of it has the kind of same vibes as say the nightmare for Christmas, which of course Danny Elfman wrote the music for that as well. So just the way it kind of like waltzes around the notes and you know you have the 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 choral children which is used a lot (laughs) as we've seen in these past few films um it's very interesting danny elfman he you know he came out of a 1980s i don't want to say new wave but it was an 80s band called oingo boingo and uh you know he did a lot of 80s pop songs there's some stuff that's even been on the radio from him 
And just, I want to know, like, what was the connection between him and Tim Burton? Were they friends? Were they acquaintances? Yeah, like, I'm not even how sure which movie this? they originally collaborated on. I'm not sure if Danny Elfman was on Pee Wee Herman that early. I think he was on Pee Wee Herman. Oh, really? I could, wow. I could look it up real quick. But I mean, we know that he was in uh, Edward Scissorhands and yes. the other two also. Not that he necessarily wrote all of the music for Sweeney Todd, but... That, yeah, that actually is the one movie I don't think he was involved with. Because, again, that was Alan Menken, who was also known for doing Disney films, too. So Yeah. Yeah, so at, as it turns out, it looks like Danny Elfman was involved with Pee Wee Herman. So he's wow, done so from a from the lot. beginning, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, they met somewhere along the way. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, uh, Tim Burton did a lot of short films. He did a lot of stuff with Disney. Vincent, which, speaking of, uh, Vincent Price was in Edward Scissorhands. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, one of, uh, Burton's most known short films, Vincent, about this young, young boy who's just, um, infatuated, uh-huh. if that's the word, with Vincent Price. And I almost wonder if Tim Burton was kind of, uh, projecting himself into that character. It's wonderful. Yeah. Have you seen that short film? I have not, but I, I saw it when I was researching stuff and Vincent Price actually did voice work. He did, in he the did the narration. Film. Uh, yeah, that's interesting that he comes back. I didn't realize he was in Sweeney Todd. Mm-hmm. Well, not Sweetie Todd, but uh, Scissorhands. Oh, Scissorhands. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah. Is there anything else, Jason, that, you know, is anything we haven't touched on that is just things that make you so, uh, you know, in love with just watching Tim Burton and just having fun with these really dark movies? You never know what he's going to do. Edward Scissorhands is a beautiful example of this because, again, I didn't know what it was going to be. I only had like my, uh, you know, idea. And every scene, there was just something to to surprise you and the way they ended the film was a surprise it was Uh not what i expected the movie itself is not what i expected and every time tim burton puts his hand on something i can all i i have to see it i just want to know what he's going to do even though you'd think at this point you'd seen he creates his own tropes you know he's a tropey guy but he finds new ways to express you know his style uh his most recent film that's going to be coming out, I believe, is going to be the Dumbo adaptation. Yeah, that's right. For Disney, the live action. Yeah. What's he going to do? Yeah. It's so Dumbo fascinating. Dumbo is one of the freakiest Disney movies anyway. Yes. <laughs> With like uh, some of those, like the drunk sequence and oh, yeah. whatever. A lot of imagery in that is a little, it's a little off-putting yeah. <laughs> for a young Not viewer. Not quite as dark as maybe Pinocchio, but sure. still, it'd be really interesting to see what uh, Tim Burton does with that. So yeah, I mean, there's there it is. I mean, every. Every single movie he puts out, everything that he touches is exciting. And what's even more exciting is when he puts out something that you weren't expecting. I remember Big Eyes when that came out back in 2014. That's one of his newest ones. Yeah, it is. And uh, we saw that in theaters. And that, too, was quite the surprise. In fact, watching Edward Scissorhands, it was interesting because he kind of goes back to that kind of suburban look with a lot of the pink houses and all that stuff. Um I don't know, man. I think he's just a treat. And every time he comes out with something, it'll be sad when he retires. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's just, he keeps a lot of um, that childhood feeling alive. Even in his more adult films, he always finds a way to bring it back to, you know, our childhood, you know, fears and just the little things yeah. that are just slightly twisted. That uncanny valley of like the blood, for example. Just the way that he sees things, it's very childlike. And it is interesting the way that he portrays childhood itself, Mm. you know. uh, Edward Scissorhands is almost a coming-of-age story in itself with uh, not only Edward Scissorhands, but Winona Ryder's character as well. Um, And then in Sleepy Hollow, you have the kid whose parents get killed at the beginning of the movie, and so he kind (sighs) of follows uh, Ichabod Crane throughout. And then, obviously, Sweeney Todd, Mm -hmm. the kid who comes back and has the the last slash if you will (laughs) it does seem as though tim burton uses a lot of children i never really thought about that 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 there's always that character that has to look up at somebody or they have to outlive the terrors yes yeah which is great for kids watching too because it gives them someone to excuse me relate to yeah Putting a caveat that not all children should be watching (laughs) (laughs) right absolutely uh, of a certain until a certain age um Okay, cool, guys. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Jason. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what we're doing next week, Alex, or next time. 
All right, Jonathan, next time on the podcast, we are going to be doing an episode all about fantasy films and tall tales. And that's a very broad subject, but we tried to pick some films that would fall in line with each other. First up would be The Princess Bride from 1987. Um, then next would be actually another Tim Burton film, Big Fish <laughs> from 2003. And then finally, from 2006, The Fall. And guys, I freaking love The Fall. So I'm, I'll be gushing about that movie. Lee Pace. It's so good. Beautiful man. Um, yeah, so it should be a good lineup. Uh, three really solid movies um, with some interesting ties. All right. That's all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And I'm at the Blue Jay 1994. And I'm at Caleb Hiles. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right. Thanks so much for coming on, Jason. We really enjoyed this conversation. Dude, yeah, thanks, it really Jason. is. Yeah, thank you, guys. Y'all are the ones who brought me on. And thank y'all for letting me, you know, pick these movies. Just, you know, it's these movies mean a lot to me. They mean a lot to my family. Hi, Mom. Um, I'm a big Halloween junkie. So if y'all ever want to look at more films like this or just even challenge me, have me watch something I've never seen, I would love to come on and just talk about something it's a lot of fun just to experience these um christopher ryden because he got to do what (laughs) christopher ryden yeah he was uh, riding a lot Um, christopher ryzen from the great grave (laughs) all right keep it going alex Mm, christopher decapitating yep Christopher walking through a winter wonderland. (laughs)